Hi everybody, Justin here from the podcast, and I have a tiny bit of bad news. This episode was recorded uh, with my audio uh, on the wrong channel, and unfortunately we have kind of echoey, not great audio for this episode. Everyone else sounds great. Admit April, Nick, and Francesca, our guests, um, and I'm a little echoey and a little distant, so really sorry about that. Tried to clean it up the best we could, um, but the podcast is still a great one, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. Have a great listen. It's episode 96 of Dive in the Podcast with special guest Francesca Coe. Dive in the Podcast is a weekly all-about-diving podcast for everyone. Whether you explore the oceans as a snorkeler, scuba diver, freediver, or tech diver, Dive In has something for you. The show is filled with diving news, feature interviews with guests from around the world, interesting dive topics, and ocean advocacy. Visit DiveInPod.com to find out more about the show, past guests, and our Patreon. Hi, everyone. I'm April. I'm Justin, and I'm gearing up this week digitally. I'm Nick, and this week's book recommendation is a local field guide to the North Atlantic. I'm Amit, and we're the hosts of Dive in the Podcast. Before we start today's episode, we'd like to thank you, the listeners. Thank you for tuning in every week. Your support encourages us to keep going and make a bigger and better podcast. What did everyone think about uh, last week's episode with uh, Claire Paris? I thought it was an awesome episode, and learning about scientific freediving was very interesting, and it's kind of a concept that I haven't really thought of before, but it also makes a lot of sense. And uh, I actually see it becoming something much more popular and around the world because it's also a lot more accessible because, uh, you know, a lot of universities, I mean, to train freediving, they need what? Like wetsuits, masks, snorkel, fins, uh, and a bit of training rather than like funding all of this dive gear. So anyways, that was kind of what I took away from it. I thought it was an interesting episode with uh yeah some scientific freediving might uh might blow up here around the world yeah and she had a you know she had a really unique uh, story you know she came to diving kind of later in life and uh and, you know make a big impact uh despite the short amount of time uh that she's you know the shorter amount of time that she's put into it uh so it's uh, it's it's pretty uh, pretty unique uh, story and it was a lot, of, a lot of fun to chat with her yeah, I actually think the point that April made, it's, um, you know, it's kind of neat that it's accessible. I also th- think it really ties in ni- nicely um, with the, the previous guest, Kirk Rock, who kind of like pioneered um, technical freediving. And that's mm-hmm. kind of neat those episodes follow, which, um, you know, is not by design. And um, mm-hmm. speaking of not by design, um, I think uh, regular listeners of the show will notice that We've had a few production hiccups lately um, in the actual show that we put out on on um, on your podcast apps that you're listening to. I think some things are backwards and uh, maybe not appearing in the right order, and there's some other like minor thing going on, um, things going on. And uh, we've also been a little bit behind on our sort of audio uh, promos and stuff. So we just kind of wanted to, you know, I guess apologize in a way to our listeners uh, for dropping the ball in a few things. Uh, we're we're running episode 96. Uh, we've been doing this every week for the last two years and, and we'll keep going. Um, so we'll, we'll kind of you know, shape up, a, if you will. 
Uh, but we got some exciting <laughs> things coming up for season three. So stay tuned uh, in a few episodes uh, when we wrap up this season. We'll we'll chat a little bit about what we're planning to do for season three and more and big, exciting things. How does everybody feel about season three? You know, it would be really, really awkward is if this episode gets released backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Almost have to do that and now, don't apologies we? at the end. That's right. <laughs> editing note, editing note, editing note. <laughs> Well, it's been a wonderful episode, guys. And uh, <laughs> Nick, and thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Uh, yeah, no, we're just uh, you know we're like we're. I, th- I think what would be really cool to do um, one day, or maybe we can do that as we wrap up the season. You know, maybe tell people a little bit about what it takes to produce a show and how yeah, crazy things sure. get behind the scenes at the last minute sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want sometimes. a live cam on Justin editing the podcast at three in the morning, <laughs> Sunday night, like with six cups of coffee on the go. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's for our Patreon. Live streams uh, of Justin. Could, 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 could be like a little, little uh, video oh that's set up like in a, in a hamster mm. cage or something. <laughs> yes. like, nothing happens for <laughs> hours and all of a sudden is a frenzy of activity. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Hey, am I, am I just a hamster? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fair. Just take the blue pills. <laughs> you want to be in a real okay. cage, yeah. you know, whatever floats the boat. Can we even bring this back on track after all that? I don't even <laughs> know. Like, trying to think really, of. Like, how are you going to drag I'm like this one? The best, I think I'm the best host at taking the show off the rails. I think that's <laughs> April's, like, April's podcast the, name. The derailer. Yeah, the derailer. Can <laughs> <laughs> try name on the website from like internet connectivity <laughs> to, to podcast derailer. derailer. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of uh, hiccups on uh, dive into podcast productions, uh, it's time to get on with our episode for tonight, and we're speaking to Francesca Co. <laughs> Francesca Co. is an active water woman, scuba diver, free diver, safety free diver, and competition judge. Francesca is the vice president of USA Freediving, the chief me- chief of media for some of the world's biggest freediving competitions, and a longtime and prolific writer for DeeperBlue.com. A passionate advocate for ocean conservation, she is a 2019 Sanctuary Wave Maker Award winner. Welcome to the podcast, Francesca. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you for sure. How are you doing today? Well, you know, we've made it to 2022, no small feat <laughs> by anybody's measurement, uh, so yeah. all, all good. We'll officially start your interview in a moment, Francesca, but before that, um, I'm, lots of us have gone diving and lots of us have had pizza, but have you ever had, uh, I don't know, pizza underwater, in the water, out on the water? I have not had pizza underwater. I have had fresh scallops underwater. Uh, perhaps more as fresh importantly, as you get than, them. Uh, just, you know, harvesting them myself. Um, and no, the most important thing I've had on the water would be coffee. Coffee. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's definitely a, definitely a true. Uh, yeah, I actually reminds me of uh, advanced open water courses, uh, diving on the one of the wrecks out here. I, I always like to get scallops and beat them to the students on their uh, on their last dive on the way back up uh, the uh, the anchor line it's good times i know i know one canadian free diver who would agree on the coffee thing <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah well uh the reason i asked about pizza specifically uh is the thane 
Milhone was a uh, high school sports reporter in Hawaii before COVID, but with the lack of high school sports, Thane had to look elsewhere for work. So he headed to Key Largo, Florida, where he now delivers pizza and uh, probably a bit more to the guests at the Jules Undersea Lodge. Uh, the key word there is undersea because he actually makes those deliveries uh, to the guests of the hotel sitting in 30 feet of water in an underwater habitat. When you stay overnight in the hotel, the pizza is included as your dinner meal because, uh, you know, it's probably hard to have a full kitchen in a habitat underwater. He dives down with the, uh, with the pizza in a, uh, in a dry box and waits so it stays level as he swims down into the habitat to make his delivery. So the, uh, so the habitat has all the amenities of home when you stay there, even Wi-Fi um, and the pizza delivery. How can you go wrong? Um, it, uh, it looks kind of cool. I'd be up for it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I can't imagine a world where I don't want to eat pizza. So whether it's <laughs> on the water, under the water, during a dive, if they could figure out a way to like package that into one of those like gel tubes, but it still comes out with dough <laughs> for your deco stops, I'd, I'd totally like, be all no. over that. Oh, yeah. yeah there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. Astronaut pizza. Astronaut pizza. I don't know. <laughs> what I, yeah, I don't know how you would make it happen, but uh, it has to. Maybe it's like cut into pieces of a pizza, and then you just kind of have a melting. I don't know. I, I, think, I can come I think up we're with just going to stop a minute right there. You, yeah. you know the Colgate toothpaste where they have the layers, so you get like a little <laughs> bit of dough, a little bit of pasta sauce, a little bit of sauce, a little bit of cheese. <laughs> you can just squeeze that in, right, man? Admit you have a new product. There's your million dollar idea. Deco yeah. stop pizza. You should patent this before this goes to air. Are you just can I just say that? <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. You're, uh, You're going to lose Dan. all of your Italian listeners. I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I didn't suggest you break up the pasta and stick it in a tube. Right? <laughs> oh, good stuff. All right. That's a, well, a good article. That's, it's a good news piece. Yeah. Check out the article. There's a, um, <laughs> there's a, it's linked in the show notes. There's also some, uh, there's some TikToks on it too. Just, you know. Oh, is there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's how I saw it. I saw a TikTok of uh, the guy bringing the pizza into their hotel room and it was pretty cool. He like (laughs) surfaces from the floor and he just like slides the dry box like into the hotel room and (laughs) opens it up and they take the pizza out and he's like, all right. And then he descends and (laughs) swims away. It's awesome. They put a tip in. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Put the money in the box. <laughs> awesome. Well, the check. I'll see if I can find a link to those TikToks and throw it in the show notes as well. And I guess that's it for the news today. It's time to dive in with Francesca Co. So, Francesca, where are you originally from? I am a native New Yorker, but okay. I am a California girl. But I was born in New York City proper, Lenox Hill yep. Hospital, 72nd and Park. Yeah, I guess you are a proper New York <laughs> New York girl. Um, is is California where you made your first memories of the ocean? Um, no, I actually made my first memories of the ocean um, out on the tip of Long Island at some of their really amazing beaches, and not even the fancy ones. Jones Beach, in particular, uh, is one that stands out. Um, but I would say that my love for the ocean and my curiosity and all the things that I really hold dear to um, exploration and discovery um, were really nurtured and grew in Northern California. Definitely. 
Is that when you got when you were exposed to diving? Yes, I'm a I'm a late bloomer. I didn't get to try it as a kid or on family vacations or even as a college student. You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, free diving wasn't popular then in terms of uh, as a recreational sport. And scuba diving always looked amazing to me, but it was cost prohibitive, time prohibitive. You know, when you're trying to eke out an existence, it's definitely <laughs> a luxury that you don't have when you're going to school and working for jobs. So um, I, I was exposed much later than most, I think. So what came first for you? Because I know you're a scuba diver and you're a free diver, but what did you start doing first? I would say with proficiency and with training, I was a scuba diver first. And I really went um, very quickly from being an open water diver all the way through to becoming an instructor and getting advanced instruction certifications and then getting into technical diving. And, you know, basically when I went as far as I could, uh, with technical diving and, you know, closed circuit rebreathers, that's exactly when I got into free diving. Um, so the, it's sort of a, it's a journey of disciplines. Um, and I love that I have had the experience in all of them. Um, but my focus now and probably what I've been enjoying the most is the free diving. So can you tell us a little bit about that journey to becoming a scuba instructor? So it was very quick, you're saying. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what you took away from it? Um, sure. So I, um, you know, when you learn to dive in the glorious and abundant waters of the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California, it's basically like being able to be a double black diamond skier, you can handle anything because you're training and learning in some of the most challenging conditions. Now, for some people, I mean, I know I'm talking to a bunch of Canadians, so you're like, (laughs) yeah, 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 you know what you're talking about. Um, But there are a lot of people who um, know visibility, turbidity, current, wave, cold, you know, these things are deterrents for a lot of people. And, um, I just fell in love literally as soon as I was immersed. And the more I could learn about how to handle those conditions and how to operate uh, in a better way for myself, you know, I just, I had such an appetite. And then, you know, it's funny. um, I have, I do a lot of conservation work and advocacy around marine ecosystems. Um, Chief among these are kelp forests. But I didn't know that that was going to be true back when my friends nicknamed me Kelp Princess. And they nicknamed (laughs) me Kelp Princess because when we were doing all of our training dives, we were diving um, off of the Carmel Coast Beach called Monastery and Monterey Beaches. And there was just prolific kelp. And a lot of the folks didn't like it. You know, they were afraid of it. It was dark. It was scary. They get tangled. And I absolutely loved it. I just felt so at home and there was so much sea life. There were so many things to see so that even if the water was pea soup green, if you're in the kelp, you were still going to see turban snails and all kinds of crabs and maybe an occasional leopard shark. So for me, um, it was really taking this sort of whole living laboratory right, right in front of me, right into my own hands. 
I, I was curious a little bit. I didn't know you you did technical diving. What was that? that yes, I'm, I, I'm a bigger dork than you thought I was already. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I loved hearing that. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. No judgment. <laughs> no judgment at all. Um, what what was your sort of your relationship with rebreathers and, and what rebreathers did you dive? Um, so we started with the Draker semi-closed and I did that. I remember so my instructor, so I actually, you know, going back, started with uh, the TDI, Advanced O2 and Trimix and all of that. And then this guy, a friend of mine and I, who were both instructors, scuba instructors, were like, let's go get our rebreather certifications. And so <laughs> we were going to be taking, it was kind of like uh, the life aquatic. We kind of connected with this guy down in the Keys and we were going to do our classwork in the Dry Tortugas. And then we were going to help bring a vessel. It was this whole crazy adventure. Anyway, um, when we're, you know, we're sitting there with all these giant groupers around us and we're trying out our, our sort of first time in the water and we're just kind of laying flat and we're trying to get used to it all. And I'm like, my friend's name is uh, Topher, uh, Christopher Chin, call him Topher. And I'm like, Topher, I'm like... I'm like, are your lungs burning? I'm like, my lungs are burning. And first of all, by the way, your lungs are not supposed to be burning. And I think there was probably uh, too much. The The guy was a little bit of a cowboy, a little bit of a maverick, the instructor. And he probably used too much uh, sulfamic acid to clean out the scrubber. Um, and I think <laughs> I was inhaling the residual. Um, but we were so excited that we could hear each other. <laughs> <laughs> in the hoses and so the whole fact that it was like yeah our lungs are burning but this is cool <laughs> um i think gives you insight into um who i am as a person <laughs> oh that's that's a great story so how how'd you how'd you go from uh sort of rebreather diving how'd you how'd you discover free diving then um so as um april was asking me i sort of started with classes, probably, what was it? I want to say it was in 2002. And then I did all of my um, different levels all the way through to a dive master. And I became an open water instructor in 2003. And then I became a master instructor and IDC staff and all that, blah, blah, blah. And um, while I was getting so involved in all of these different aspects of uh, diving, I was running um, shark cage diving at the Farallons, you know, doing any expedition I could, trying to always further my own education and knowledge. I'd gotten involved with a publication called Deeper Blue, and I was writing articles um, for a lovely chap named Stephen Whelan, who still runs Deeper Blue and is a, is a great icon in our industry and in our social circles. And uh, we would go to these dive trade shows, uh, DEMA, Dive Equipment Manufacturers Association, I think is the acronym. And at the dive shows, um, you know, we would run into some of the same people. And I became friends with a woman named Mandy Ray Cruikshank, who is also Canadian. Mm -hmm. And she was a course director. She was a scuba instructor course director, even though she's also a world champion free diver and a former world record holder. And we became fast friends and pro, um, 
I want to say it might have been 2007, 2008. Uh, she and her husband were running a women's workshop in Hawaii and uh, Kona, the big island. And they asked me to come and do an article. And I was like, sure, why, why, who doesn't want to go to Hawaii? <laughs> and so I went to this workshop that they were hosting for um, women. And there were a lot of cool ladies in this workshop. Um, Julie Reif from uh, Reif mm -hmm. International. It's a spearfishing uh, equipment company. Uh, Liz Parkinson, who is a huge shark advocate. Uh, she's American, but she's from South Africa. So a lot of really cool ladies who were great water women. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go check it out and see what it's about. And I was going to write an article about my experience. And the thing that was so fascinating to me, because I was so comfortable already for, from being in the water and teaching and being, you know, completely comfortable in a, a range of conditions. It was so interesting to have that Zen beginner state of mind in this free diving class because I'd never taken a free diving class. You know, sure, I've dove down before and I probably was equalizing and I didn't realize it. And, you know, snorkeling was something that everybody had exposure to. But it was almost like being a baby giraffe because here you are someone who is um, leading expeditions, teaching, constantly surveying and observing externally what's going on, and then being, being given a set of tools that literally sort of changed my perspective, my understanding, my appreciation of the physiology and how I approached things. And to go from clunky, lots of, you know, dry suits and side mounts and bladders and tanks all over the place to literally as little as possible and to not be externally focused on planning and PPO2 monitors and students and to just be focused on or needing to be focused on my breath and what I was doing and how I was literally and figuratively in the water was both refreshing and somewhat humbling because you realize just how out of tune you are with what's actually going on when you have all those layers of equipment and things. So is that what you would say you enjoy most about freediving or what do you enjoy most? Oh God, there's probably too many, <laughs> too many things to list. Um, number one, I love the feeling of the freedom and the weightlessness and the buoyancy. And I love the feeling of the free fall. I love the community of people. Um, I, I think it can't be said enough. Um, what, what we all experience obviously is a kinship and a, a love and admiration for mother ocean. But if we're all being really honest, there are some really damn cool people that we have so much fun with. Um, <laughs> so I would put that at the top of my list. Um, I also, you know, coming from Northern California where it's a little cooler, but that means that there is more sea life. There's more plankton. There's more krill. There's more wildlife. There's more fish. There's more invertebrates. Um, it doesn't just feed your soul. You know, harvesting is a huge aspect for many of us who come from a tradition in Northern California along with things like Dungeness crab and abalone. 
Um, so it, it feeds you in, in both of those ways. So how is the transition from going from being a recreational free diver to a competitive free diver? What is that transition like? Well, I think it's probably different for everyone. And um, in addition to being an instructor in all of the disciplines and in being a competitive free diver, I'm also a judge and someone who's been a rescue trainer. And so I'm just sort of hungry for information at, at every level. And so I like to layer on all of those layers I was telling you I was getting rid of. Um, I just think it's really great to have as much information so you can be prepared and ready uh, to handle whatever might come your way. And for me, I learned in a system, you know, there are a lot of different um, training systems. And I think that most of them are pretty much, you're getting the same thing. Um, and it really depends on your instructor. So you can really um, take any of these courses regardless. There shouldn't be sort of wars against agencies. Um, it's about how, how you apply what you learn. And um, my introduction to freediving was really through a fundamental system that focused on safety, safety first. Um, you know, buddy systems, one up, one down, rescuing yourself, rescuing others, knowing what to do, having a plan, executing that plan. And so as a part of um, the different classes I took, certification levels in freediving, um, you know, I went from, I was already, I didn't start in a beginner class because I was already very naturally comfortable in the water. So I started at basically an intermediate class because of all the time I had spent as a technical and a scuba instructor. Um, and so things like when we talk about technique for being able to equalize your airspaces, and sometimes people have a hard time transitioning from Valsalva to Frenzel, for example. I am confident that I couldn't, I, I, well, probably now I could explain to you, but back then I couldn't tell you how to Frenzel, but I was doing it. Like I was, my body was adapted. I was already doing it. And people were like, well, how are you doing it? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> um, and I think that because the way that I was taught was so focused on safety, that being um, someone who could be helpful in a competition setting um, as both uh, a safety or a coordinator or an organizer, and then eventually as a judge. Um, for me, I think that transition was a little less uh, scary and probably a little less ambitious. And what I mean by that is I wasn't worried about, oh my God, how am I going to perform? What's going to happen? You know, I didn't have those nerves because it was really about the system and making sure all of the parts and pieces and the roles that were required to sustain the system. You know, you guys are, a lot of you are technical divers. It's all about the redundancy. It's all about mm -hmm. understanding what each other is doing so that we're all prepared and helping each other. So that transition for me, I think was quite easy. Um, and then I think from a the unfortunate thing is that I've been blessed with mental agility and nerves of steel, but I have <laughs> zero discipline. So I could be the most amazing world record setting freediver if I had any discipline. 
<laughs> because what ends up happening mm-hmm. in the competitive circuit is people melt down, they freak out, they have anxiety, they overthink, like they can't get out of their heads. And I'm so not in my head. I, it just, you know, this is the gift, but I have no discipline. <laughs> That's like fantastic. That. I feel you. Well, I, I'm going to say you must have uh, some discipline, even though you, you you have a fantastic approach to it there. But uh, that comes to mind to me when I think about uh, some of the ocean advocacy work that you're doing. And so changing track a bit to that end, was there a specific moment then uh, when you knew that ocean advocacy was going to become central to your life and your work as a person who you claim is not a hard worker? <laughs> no, no, I'm a hard worker. I have no discipline. There's no discipline. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's a funny thing. So from a professional standpoint, um, so you guys already know I was born in New York and then I was living in um, Northern California, San Francisco, sort of home of Silicon Valley and technology. And I was working in technology publishing before I got into environmental policy and advocacy. And so, you know, as these very A-type driven people, what do you do in your free time? You know, you're working ridiculous hours and constantly on a device. And so in your free time, you know, you hump tanks and you teach people how to scuba dive and you drive back and forth from Monterey to San Francisco and you have zero time left. So you take a very busy person and you give them something else to do. (laughs) And in that... um, in that endeavor um, and in the work that I was doing, communications and communication strategy for uh, nonprofits eventually, I started uh, doing advertising and marketing and uh, campaigns for the Natural Resources Defense Council. And they were a client of mine before I actually went and worked there on staff. And the people that were running their oceans program were so tireless and fearless in the work that they were doing. And I appreciated it so much. So when I would go diving and I'd have access to amazing footage or photos or whatever it might be, I would send it over to Karen Garrison, the then um, director of their oceans program. And I'd be like, Hey, Karen, you know, here's some photos. If you need them for any of your fact sheets or your projects or whatever you need, I would just send her photos, you know, because as someone who is trained in telling stories and helping people understand, you know, you need to meet people where they are. And I knew that I was being able to witness and see things that most people didn't get to see. And so I wanted to give her some assets to help her with her work. Long story longer, um, eventually Karen asked me to help in a public-private policy process called the Marine Life Protection Act. Um, And they were taking stakeholders from all walks of life that were interacting with the coast and the fisheries and the marine resources up and down the coast of California to set up what would eventually become the first network of marine protected areas in the world and 124 of them along the coast of California that now exist. And if I knew then what it takes, all the sausage making, I probably would have said no. (laughs) But um, I survived a little bit scathed and um, I'm proud to be a part of a rich history of people volunteering their time and information 
academics, scientists, fisher people, surfers, everyone um, who cares about the ocean, importantly, the tribes as well, um, to be able to say, this is where things need to be protected. This is what I'm seeing. This is how we're using the resource. And um, so that, that would be the first sort of monumental foray into an actual sort of statewide that eventually became a federal policy for me. Very cool. And so now you've also, that's led into other work as well. And there's the conservation efforts uh, you mentioned. Tell us about the the work with the Greater Farallons National Marine Society or Sanctuary, sorry, and uh, how that came to be. Sure. So um, in the United States, um, we have a system of national marine sanctuaries. And right now we have 14 of them. I think there are a couple other that are in designation. Like there's one in Southern California called the Chumash Heritage Site that has been nominated but has not been officially designated. We're hoping that happens. And if it does get designated, it will be the first sanctuary system nominated and supported by the indigenous tribes of the area, uh, which is really important, I think, as we try to make sure that inclusivity and traditional ecological knowledge are represented in all of these different systems. So what a national marine sanctuary actually does is protect uh, coastline and ocean from uh, drilling. So you cannot excavate, you cannot drill. Um, it doesn't mean you can't do other things. A lot of other activities, commercial activities happen in national marine sanctuaries, you know, including tourism, including fishing, um, but all with an eye towards doing it in a sustainable way. So in the U.S., I think sometimes people hear that and they think, oh, it means you can't do anything or it does a specific mm -hmm. thing. It's really about drilling. Mm -hmm. um, and so through the Marine Life Protection Act, as I was a stakeholder during that process for the state of California, for the North Central region, I met and interacted and interfaced with a whole host of people, um, some of whom were involved at the sanctuary level, which is a federal designation. The, the MPAs were a state designation. Um, sorry not to confuse folks. And people asked me to get involved um, because they sort of heard my passion and my point of view. And I was sort of where the two kind of different factions met, right? You had the, what they call the armchair ivory tower scientists, right? Where a lot of the people <laughs> were like, they're not even on the water. They don't know what's going on. <laughs> and then you had people who were um, being paid by consumptive industry to say one thing, right? So you had these, you know, one's on the right and one's on the left. And I was sort of like in the middle because I'm a consumptive user, but I'm also in the water all the time. I'm there. I can see what's happening. I understand. And so I became sort of this kind of woman on the street, as it were. And I think that they appreciated that that was a good intersection where we could bring things together with common, common goals and unite instead of be so disparate. So is that your role on the advisory council then to kind of to, to play that, you know, middleman role? Uh, so the system, um, there are um, superintendents of every sanctuary that exists in the United States. And the sanctuary superintendent has a staff 
and the staff will have expertise in policy or science or education or, you know, a whole range of things. But then what, what a really good system does, I believe, is include people who are actually utilizing the resources and who understand that particular marine ecosystem. And so in the Sanctuary Advisory Council role on any of these sanctuaries, um, depending on where it's located, there will be different seats, right? So there will be a conservation seat. There will be a maritime seat that's like shipping. There might be a commercial fishing seat. There might be a recreational fishing seat. There could be, you know, there are all these different seats depending on what's happening in that location. And I think it's a really smart way to approach it so that you have people who are experts in that area who can lend their voice and things that matter to that whole constituency to the fore to the staff, to the superintendent, to the other people who are being represented in the stakeholder seats so that you can come together and create policy for these public resources that will sustain the resource and sustain the relationship that we humans have with these marine ecosystems. Because it's not like we're outside of these systems. We are very much a part of these systems and in order for them to work well, I think that we have to be very collaborative. And, you know, sometimes that means constraining. Sometimes that means opening things up. Um, But in all instances, it's about having the best information so that we can make the best decisions. Yeah, that sounds like a really well thought out uh, system. Does Does it work as well as it sounds like it should? Well... No, (laughs) but, (laughs) but that's, you know, it's sort of, it's when you have people who come to a table and maybe they have different points of view, sometimes it takes longer. You know, I'm, I'm a very impatient person. I already told you I'm from New York (laughs) type A. I'm like, come on, let's go, let's go. Um, So no, you have to make space for hearing people and listening and Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people like to hear themselves talk and you want to kill yourself. But no, (laughs) um, aside from my sarcasm, I think given um, the alternatives, I think it Mm -hmm. works really well. But it's never um, it's never neat and it's never fast. Mm -hmm. But because people are respected and their inputs are included, I actually think we come up with um, better policies than we would have otherwise. Mm, That's neat. I mean, I'm thinking about the uh, the marine sanctuary, and I'm thinking about how you say that, like, uh, Northern California is your happy place. We've talked to, you know, a few divers from Northern California, a few from Southern California, but can you, like, take us on a dive there, just, you know, explain a little bit of what it's like to dive in, in that area that you call your happy place? Oh, sure, absolutely. So the, uh, the temperature is constant. Uh, it's 50 degrees at the surface all year round. So the only thing that changes is the air temperature and how much sun there is. And so it might feel warmer, but it it really isn't. (laughs) Uh, And at depth, it's probably 47. Um, And um, there are days when you can have astounding visibility, Mm. you know, and you see these incredible kelp forests. We have both macrocystis and bull kelp. So, um, you know, the macrocystis is the giant kelp that basically looks like a forest. 
and the bull kelp is more like a like a whip with long hairs coming out of it. And both of those are essential keystone building blocks for the neighborhoods um, that are home to seabirds and marine mammals and fish and all kinds of invertebrates. And so when there is good visibility, um, the colors are surreal. It's like a teal blue and then the tawny kelp and the rays coming through with the sunlight. Um, And then on a day where there's not great visibility, you know, you kind of just have to be a little more patient and look a little closer because there's still so much to see. It's just not as lit up. And, uh, you know, San Francisco is known as a foodie town and Northern mm-hmm. California is known for all kinds of amazing fresh ingredients. Mm-hmm. And we are, um, the backyard in the water in the ocean is one of only five upwellings in the world. And what the upwelling does off of the California current is bring up all these cold, nutrient-dense and rich waters up to the surface so that all of the creatures, all the wildlife, they come to feed. And so that's why you have um, both such amazing wildlife to view and take photographs of, but also amazing things to eat like salmon and Dungeness and halibut and, you know, you name it. Wow, sounds wonderful. That sounds lovely. Definitely, yeah, definitely a place to, to visit, I think. Um, you, you were awarded with the Sanctuary Wavemaker Award in 2019 for your work. Um, as a passionate water woman, what, what did that milestone mean to you? Um, well, I have to confess that it still gives me butterflies and tingles. And, you know, when you do things on a volunteer basis, more often than not, it's sort of, you know, unsung, thankless, lots of work behind the scenes. And for the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries and for NOAA and for the National Marine Sanctuary Foundation to host this incredible gala and recognize not just me, but other people doing this work um, was such a privilege, such a surprise. Um, it's not the reason why I do it, but it definitely put a smile on my face and, um, and was a, a real privilege to be celebrated by other people doing amazing things as well. You do a lot of ocean conservation, but sometimes people, when they watch documentaries, like a big one this year was Sea Spiracy, uh, it's really depressing and they feel like they're in over their head. Uh, what is a small change that our listeners could do that makes a big impact? Well, I think that we all can sort of vote and take action with our words and our dollars and uh, the stories that we share. And so um, if, for example, I didn't watch that film because I just, you know, I can't take any more bad news. (laughs) And and, and I didn't agree with it, but (laughs) um, I think that, um, you know, we... We as a society, we like to latch on to these things that are, don't do this, and this person's the villain, and that activity's the villain, and blah, blah, blah. And I would rather reinforce what what are we for? Uh, what do we want to see more of? Um, not about blaming and accusing and sort of pointing the finger. And so as innocuous as it might sound, um, 
it's kind of like the things that are are simple but that people tend to disregard and so again whether that's you as an individual trying to do your best to reduce your single use plastic consumption um there are so many people on this planet and if you take something like that where we're all using a canvas bag or a paper bag or we bring our own metal straw things where when you multiply you know you have to remember it's not that we're like 4 million 5 million we're like 9 10 billion there's so many of us um and just to remember that those individual actions when they're in the positive frame they all add up and so if you can do something small um like change a, a, a daily habit then that helps um you know when you take for example there's a guy over in india in um i want to say in mumbai and i'm forgetting his name fantastic guy who started going to one of the most devastatingly dirty beaches and he started organizing and i mean like like the kind of degradation and pollution that nightmares are made of and he started to individually do a clean up every week and then more people saw what he was doing and it was a positive cleaning it up cleaning up and he's an attorney by trade and I, forgive me for not remembering his name i will remember and i will email it so you can put it in the show notes and he ended up becoming like the example of one person making this huge difference and literally changing not just the landscape of that beach and reducing and removing tons and tons and tons literal tons of garbage but then he became an ambassador for the United Nations environmental development program because he had that can do attitude like this is one thing that I can do. I can go every week and I can go remove this debris and then I can inspire others to help me. And then we can create this sort of model by which other locations in our country can do the same. And I don't think you have to think that you're going to have this grand vision of what it is, but if you do your small part, it literally does make a difference. Wow. I think uh I think that's uh you know, a good way to look at it. I think that's uh yeah, makes makes it definitely attainable for for everybody for sure. I think uh, while I keep thinking about that, we'll take a quick surface interval, and we'll be right back with more from Francesca Co. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or at Podchaser.com. Reviews are one of the best ways to help others find the podcast. This episode of Dive In The Podcast is brought to you by Torpedo Rays Scuba. You can find them online at torpedorays.com. They've been teaching Canada how to dive for 25 years and are a proud sponsor of this podcast. If you're in Atlantic Canada and want to take a course or see the shop, stop in and see us in Dartmouth and check out the huge selection of scuba, apnea, surf gear, and much more. Dive tours are available for locals and visitors to experience all that our ocean playground has to offer. TorpedoRays.com has a vast selection of dive gear at unbeatable prices, with free shipping available in Canada and quick shipping throughout North America. So visit TorpedoRays.com or stop in the shop and you might even see one of us there.
Welcome back to Dive in the Podcast. We're speaking with Francesca Co, a water woman, free diver, and dedicated ocean advocate. So Francesca, you've mentioned earlier uh, in association with DeeperBlue.com, and we're sure Stephen will be listening to this, the best hour in diving uh, as a writer. <laughs> how did that partnership first evolve? So Stephen is definitely listening. He, uh, he complimented you to me. So just know that awesome. he was giving you guys shout outs. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. Um, I started writing uh, scuba articles for Deeper Blue um, when I was sort of a new and young instructor and starting to notice some similar questions, similar challenges that my students were facing. And so I thought, what better way to try to bring all the information into digestible morsels um, that would give them sort of a solutions-oriented way to handle the challenges they might be facing or give them the right kinds of questions to understand, you know, why equipment selection was important and why those kind of fundamentals were important to having a successful open water experience. Because if you're comfortable and you're not fidgeting with things, then you're able to actually see what's happening around you. Um, and actually enjoy the stillness. That was one of the things that I always remembered uh, as an instructor, how unstill people were. And <laughs> that that the, the way that I could help them was to get them to pause, to slow down, to, um, to be able to try to not be constantly frenetically moving. And so... Um, that's how I started working with Stephen for deeperblue.com. And then that evolved into um, doing a lot more coverage around news to then doing a lot more coverage around being a managing editor to then when I really launched my interest towards um, breath hold and apnea and free diving um, and becoming more advanced myself in that arena, um, then I really began to look at all of the different interesting athletes and characters that were in the freediving portion of this sort of industry. And I started to write more in-depth uh, profiles around people and around competitions. And my timeline is probably off, but I think because I was doing a lot of that work um, back in 2012, uh, William Truebridge at that point had been hosting Vertical Blue for uh, a little while, and he was going to be doing a live internet radio stream for the first time. And so he was looking for people to be the commentators for that first ever live stream. And so he um, gracious, graciously chose myself. And he also chose Dan Verhoeven, which, um, which was a great pairing, um, both because Dan was sort of like 
tall and sarcastic and imposing and, you know, very Dutch. And I was kind of short and cheerful and very American, as he would say. And so we could not have been more yin and yang. And so, you know, he would say something slightly shady about someone and I'd be like, no, no, they're trying their best. And so it it was, it was kind of, um, it's almost like a comedy show. Um, and so from that point on, I got involved in doing um, uh, media and platform and other sort of organizational efforts for Vertical Blue. And I've been the chief media officer for them since then. Oh, and Vertical Blue is a free diving competition for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what that is. (laughs) I think Nick has drilled it into all of our listeners' heads by now, (laughs) maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So when you write articles for Deeper Blue, Francesca, what type of articles do you typically write? And is there a particular piece or interview that has meant more to you than others? So um, getting all fuck clamped. Um, we, like I said, have an amazing community of people. And unfortunately, we've lost friends along the way. Um, And sometimes in order for people to understand how special these people are, because they didn't get their own firsthand experiences, um, I think that I take it upon myself to try to share some of the more playful um, and funny memories that we have uh, at these competitions or at these events not just in terms of the performances or the work, but some of the sort of off times and let people see um, how many of the people that I've had the good fortune to call friends and family, um, the the wonderful attributes that make them who they are shine through in all of their endeavors, not just in the free diving. And so I would say that some of those Articles and profile pieces are probably the ones that are dearest to me because those people were so dear to me. Well, that's a very somber answer. Uh, but do you find that you're ever struggling to to find a topic then to write on? Because, um, I mean, there are a lot of things going on. Or do you, do you find that you're in a place where there are too many things that uh, that you want to write on but just don't have the time to do it? Um. I, you know, it's been obviously COVID for the past two plus years. And so many of the group gathering and events that we should have had, we didn't get to have. Um, and so more recently, the ones that we have had, um, there have been some sort of amazing advances and leaps and bounds in some of these performances, especially by the women and to be able to celebrate those women and their accomplishments, because um, no offense, guys, but it's always been, oh, this guy's doing this and this guy's doing that. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, battle of the guys. But the women are doing things that are absolutely mind-blowing. And when I think about uh, women like Elise Modolo of France and her um, accomplishments at Vertical Blue and her first ever as a French woman world record. And I think about Alenka Artnik and her absolutely mind-bending, stoic, 
dedicated performance that blows all the guys out of the water. You know, there is, um, there are so many different ways you can appreciate. They have these different philosophies and the different styles and it's not big and it's not brash. It's all about dedication and training and it's how they apply themselves in the off season and in the everyday and in the quiet moments. And then all of a sudden you see them <laughs> on these global events and you're like, where the heck did that come from? And it just, it, it's inspiring. You know, there, it's nothing short of inspiring. Um, speaking of inspiring, I, I was wondering how writing for, you know, what's now the biggest diving platform, um, how that's impacted you as a diver. Well, let's go back to that. I'm not very disciplined topic. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I think that um, I, I wish I did have more discipline because I feel like there are so many more stories to tell and there are so many people doing so many cool things. And if I was more consistent in my writing, um, and Stephen will agree with me on this, you know, that we could do double the number of pieces. <laughs> um, just not realistic in, in uh, 24 hours in a day. Uh, but there really are um, so many amazing stories and they're all unique. And I think that's what's really fascinating. It's like everyone comes at this sport and their sort of um, connection to the ocean you know, we might all appreciate it for some of the same reasons, but how we got there and why we got there and who we got there with, they're all so completely different and fascinating. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I'm not one for resolutions, but maybe I'll write a few more articles this year. <laughs> That's fantastic. You, you mentioned who we got there with, and I don't think I've ever heard anybody phrase it like that. So I just want to say that that was a really nice way to, to hear how, like how we experience our journeys. Sometimes we forget the people that are on those journeys with us. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, this is, it takes a village. We are a village, you know, we comfort each other. We, we safety each other. We lend our gear to each other. We're feeding each other. We're probably sharing a room in some hostel or, you know, meeting up somewhere. Um, it definitely is about the journey and it's definitely about who's with you on the journey. Yeah, something else. And well, I guess you're, you're taking some folks on the, on journeys as you go through vertical blue, uh, and blue elements, free diving competitions in the role of chief of media. And it, it makes me wonder for a person, you know, with that title, uh, how do you achieve that, and what does that involve for you, especially as uh, as you've so fondly said, uh, as an undisciplined person? <laughs> he's, he's not giving that one up, is he? I, guess. He's not, he, he's not. I just don't buy it. I'm just like, there's no way you're not disciplined. Like for what you've accomplished, there, you just you have to be disciplined. It just may be a different uh, a different meaning to the word discipline. <laughs> uh, well, the the beauty of this is that. Um, I mentioned my partner in crime on the radio streaming endeavor who happens to be the world's most prolific underwater breath hold photographer, Dan Verhoeven. And so Dan will capture 
these moments and these images and the background and the environment in which we're in and the classic moments of success or the tragedy of defeat. And he just takes these incredible photos. And so there's half of my job right there, right? And then the um, the people who are working at the event or the athletes who are participating at the event or the beautiful souls like Gemma and Dominica, who's feeding us, you know, everyone is bringing forward their own unique flavor. And, you know, we get to share that, you know, and so part of the work that I do is to make sure that we're telling that story. And so really, it's more about curating all of these ingredients and these assets, because there's so many wonderful people, and there's so many wonderful stories, and making sure that we position that so that we can share it both with the people who are already cheering them on and are fans of them and the f- friends back home, the family back home, but then to also encourage and um, provide access to the audience that doesn't understand, that's new, that wants to understand, but doesn't have the vernacular or the context. And so to try to provide that, um, I think a good example that you would never know otherwise um, there was a recent article, there've been a lot of articles this year, or excuse me, 2021 on Alexei Molchanov, as there should be, because he's just a beast and he's amazing and he's also a fun guy. Um, but GQ uh, sent someone down to the competition in the Bahamas on Long Island to cover the story. And the the writer did a good job, but then there were a lot of things that he didn't get because he's not a free diver, because he's not a judge, because he's not an athlete, because he doesn't understand. And so there were terms and phraseology and just sort of metaphors that he wanted to use that weren't correct. And I probably spent the better half of three weeks after I was given a draft with their, um, they have a really good research department. And they were like, is this how we should say this? And is this correct? And is this and this and And so, you know, I spent a lot of time back and forth making sure that the finished piece, even though I wasn't writing it and I wasn't the editor and I'm not the publisher, but my job as someone who's in charge of media is to make sure that the people who are telling the story also tell the correct story in terms of technical information or the context for why something is done or why someone approaches something a certain way right? It's, it's still the individual story. It's still the reporter or the writer providing the narrative, but I just want to make sure that they're saying, um, you know, when he's ascending that he's not in free fall. (laughs) (laughs) I I was wondering as a, as a freediver, you know, when you're, when you're chief of media at an event, uh, do you ever have a moment where you go, Oh, I'd rather either be competing or judging or just being in the water? Oh, always, always, always rather be in the water. But um, um, as I was saying earlier, to be able to be a part of a team that creates an environment that allows people to achieve things beyond their wildest dreams and all of our wildest dreams is really an honor. And, um, you know, you have a front row seat to the best show on earth. So, why not? But yes, I would absolutely always rather be underwater. 
I think it's like working in the dive shop in the summer and you have all the divers coming in going diving and you're so happy to uh, to see them going diving, but you're sad because you're stuck inside the dive shop, I imagine. <laughs> That's what that <laughs> feeling is like. You sit on the board of directors, USA Free Diving. Specifically, what roles do you contribute to the organization? Uh, so we have... Um, uh, Let's see, there's, I think there are four or five of us. Um, and it's a nonprofit board of basically a sports um, association that supports um, the, the growth of freediving in the United States and supports the athletes that are going abroad to compete. Uh, and we sanction uh, events and national records. And we serve as um, there are Right now, two different um, sports federations, for lack of a better word, that represent uh, international events around the world. Um, one of them is CMAS, and the other one is ADA. Um, and I'm a judge, actually, for both of those organizations. But in terms of the way that ADA is set up, um, they are a federation of assembly members, and the assembly is comprised of all the member nations. So, for example, you know, the France and Japan and Canada, USA, et cetera, et cetera. There's, I think, upwards of over 50 uh, member countries. And so as a board and then as a, um, a membership body, um, I think we're probably more than 50, less than 100 people in the United States that are part of the United States Freediving Association, which is the, M- the ADA embodiment of that sport. Um, We try to do everything we can to make sure people know what our athletes are doing uh, in terms of national records or how they're performing at different events and then support them with, you know, swag and sponsorship where we can. And, you know, first and foremost for us is always about um, safety, but it's really just sort of a, a, a governing body to make sure people are current and that the, the records and the achievements of our athletes are celebrated. And I think I didn't answer the question. I'm the vice president. <laughs> <laughs> Ricardo Paris is the president, and I'm the vice president, and Anna Clapper is the secretary, uh, Nathan Leeser is the treasurer, and Ben Weiss, who also used to be a safety at Vertical Blue, is the member at large. We've had a lot of free, competitive freedivers on the podcast and uh, just freedivers in general talk about how, you know, warm and welcoming the global community is. And you've, you've worked in all these angles as a competitor, judge, chief of media and all at these competitions. How does that influence your perspective on the sport? Um, well, I think it's sort of um, you see a lot of things that you're proud of. And you're proud of the work that's being done by a lot of individuals, um, but not to sugarcoat everything. You also see a lot of things that you're disappointed in, um, in terms of just human nature. And I'll give you an example of that. There's this guy named Curly Nick, and he was just, no, I'm kidding. Um, in, in the ADA sanctioning of the sport, there's a set of rules that everyone has to follow. Mm-hmm. in order for a performance to be valid, an event to be valid, et cetera, et cetera. One of the rules that someone created whenever they did, and probably for good reason, is that 
athletes are allowed to protest other athletes' performances. As a judge, as an athlete, as a person who really cares about sportsmanship and fairness, I hate this rule. I think it's a Mm -hmm. terrible rule. And um, whether it's um, appropriate or not, when I'm judging an event, I remind people that I don't like this and that it's unsportsmanlike and that you Mm -hmm. should win or lose or get a medal or get the points or do whatever based on the merits of your own performance. Do not worry about someone else. If you would like to protest uh, a judgment that you received as an individual athlete all day long, go for it. Protest your performance. Do it, do it, do it. That's what the, that's why there are judges so that that dynamic can happen. I personally don't like when athletes protest other athletes because I think it goes against the letter of the spirit of us doing this because really when you're freediving, you're not, you're not competing against anyone else but yourself. You're pushing your own limits. You're pushing whatever training you've done, whatever you've put in, you're going to get out. So when I see the practice of encouraging someone to protest someone else, that, that to me is the disappointing part. And, you know, that's sort of the insidious side of human nature, you know, worrying about what Mm -hmm. someone else is doing. Interesting. I didn't realize that was part of that. And uh, that sounds like this uh, needs a vote for rule change at some level. (laughs) Some more sausage making. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So now what's next on your freediving bucket list or advocacy projects? Anything we should keep an eye on other than maybe changing that rule? (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to have to get all the assembly country member nations to bring it forward. And like I said, that's sausage making. So I don't know if we'll see that happen. (laughs) But in good news, I literally just today got an email from um, Congressman Jared Huffman represents um, District Number 2 in Northern California, um, which is the district in which the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank sanctuaries are located. And he is an avid outdoors person, fisherman. He's been a real advocate for the oceans. And uh, last year, he sponsored legislation for um, protecting our kelp forests, which have been under attack for a variety of reasons. Um, And it, you know, it's Congress, so it just kind of sat there and was stagnant. And the The legislation is called the KELP Act, Keeping Ecosystems Living and Productive Act. And I just got an email today that it is actually going into markup, which means it went through the House and has now gone through the Senate. And so fingers crossed um, that it makes it through. I don't know, you guys might not have had Schoolhouse Rock in Canada, but they had these little <laughs> cartoons that would explain how how long this process took. So we're hoping that the bill gets through um, and then that will create funding and resources for local communities, for tribes, people, for different innovative technologies to actually do restoration work um, uh, to upwards to $50 million annually, again, for an essential keystone building block for our coastlines. And it's not just about 
the marine life. It's about um, business up and down the coast of California. So I'm, I'm my fingers are crossed for that. Wow, that awesome. sounds very, very uh, cool. And and here's all of our fingers crossed to that happening and paving the way potentially, right? Because I could see things like that catching on in other areas if there are other advocates uh, pushing for similar types of change. Yeah, uh, unfortunately. We're seeing this degradation um, of this ecosystem, you know, up in the Salish Sea, up in um, BC, um, over in Australia, Tasmania. I mean, everywhere where there is kelp, they're seeing the same kind of challenges that we're facing. So, well, let's hope, uh, let's hope we can make a difference there because uh, some of my best memories are of diving in Southern California in the kelp forests. Um, but I have a hard, I have a hard hitting question here for you. Um, we interviewed, uh, Louisa Collins back in episode 57 of the podcast. And, uh, uh, is it her or is it you that gets the, uh, the credit for Nick's nickname, Curly Nick? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would have to say that it is the clever British woman who, originated the name i may have as a media maven popularized <laughs> it but the lovely louisa collins uh gets full credit ah. and um and 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 i uh, you might not know this but it we needed to have designation because we had two very handsome nicks <laughs> i think we might have even had three but we we left with a curly nick and a bearded nick so <laughs> That poor curly bearded Nick in the third it, place. It's very funny because I came back to Halifax and people were calling me curly Nick. I'm like, how'd you know that? And then it was because <laughs> you were doing the, the Facebook lives from the platform in Dominica. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I had that playing in the dive shop uh, live. So it's uh, good stuff. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you for uh, thank you for getting it out there. And thanks to Louisa for coming up with the great nickname. <laughs> Francesca, where can people find you online? Oh, they can find me um, and the articles that I write on deeperblue.com. Uh, if you're someone who uh, uses Twitter, you can find me at Freedive. If you're someone who uses all the other social platforms, Snapchat, Instagram, Clubhouse, I'm at Kelp Princess. Nice. What keeps you diving, Francesca? It's, it keeps me sane. It keeps me happy. Um, diving keeps me inspired. Um, I just like being in the water. Literally, um, obviously salt water makes everything better, but I, um, just because I'm with a bunch of really badass Canadians, I want you to know that my friend Nathan and I train in a quarry that is seven degrees Celsius and brown, brown, brown. So um, <laughs> I might not be disciplined, but I'm dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, it just it brings me joy. I, I, I keep diving and I keep going back to the ocean because it just brings me so much joy. And then because I've had that good fortune um, I really want other people to have the same experience, um, to be able to revel in the joy that the ocean can bring. That's awesome. 
and inspiring and uh, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing the last hour or so with us and making us laugh and uh, and it's uh, yeah just having a great conversation I really appreciate you coming on tonight Francesca thank you guys for having me yeah thank you so much it's uh, it's great catching up and it it's funny because there's so many things I didn't know about you um, that <laughs> I learned trying to write a, a bunch of these questions um, yeah Thank you so much. Ci vediamo. Well, that was a fantastic interview. Let's head over to Justin. What do you got for us tonight, Justin? Well, tonight I'm gearing up. I'm going to change it up a little bit. Um, it's, a, it's a gaming gearing up. Uh, sort of view of, of a diving simulator game for cell phones that uh, market itself as an alternative to diving for those who can't travel due to COVID and to promote gear training, gear sales, and uh, promote further training and, and gear sales and uh, just, you know, overall interest people in diving. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe that'll be kind of cool. Let me go uh, check that out. So I headed over to the App Store of choice because, of course, Android. And um, I went to download it, but they wanted $50 Canadian for it, which I thought was a little steep for a cell phone game. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe some other folks have, uh, have tried it out and like it and it's worth every penny. I don't know. I have not demoed it, so I can't tell you, but it got me thinking as a bit of a gamer myself, I do enjoy a, a good video game. There's not a lot of underwater video games. Um, cause it got me thinking back to like the days of, I like Echo the Dolphin on Sega and shooting those little bubble rings at the bad guys. And those are just great times. I had a lot of fun with that. And I found some lists of other games online, uh, none of which I've managed to play. Uh, but I've, I've seen some of them and I've kind of wondered about uh, one of them is, is called A-B-Z-U or A-B-Z-U, Abzu. I'm not really sure how they pronounce it, but it's like it looks like a little bit of a, uh, a drug trip underwater and this just looks really mesmerizing and and a lot of fun um there's also a lot of horror stuff underwater like bioshock games and another one called soma and there's some like submarine based games and those those look pretty fun uh, i even found one for april's the uh, bunch bob square pants battle for bikini bottom uh <laughs> underwater uh, game i think uh april's always telling me about how spongebob is one of the best shows on television uh, for for comedy gold, uh, I don't know if she's right or not, but uh, I I I know you guys aren't playing. I don't think any of you really play any video games. Uh, so I have, uh, so my question goes out to the listeners: uh, What water based games are you gearing up with over this kind of winter slash COVID slash holiday season? Um, I wanna I wanna be I wanna play a video game that involves water that's fun i want you know is there an avatar game maybe tied to avatar 2 that's going to be coming out gives a lot of water uh, water related stuff um yeah it's just this is diving adjacent i know just give uh, bear with me here but uh, i want to i want to play good underwater game so i need i need a top tip and so somebody help me out with a top tip reach out on social media to email us at our uh, at our you know email address dive in dot the podcast at gmail.com or uh you know uh send a smoke signal i don't know the self-addressed stamped envelope uh and we'll uh i'd love to hear from you so justin i have to tell you something what's that april 
I have SpongeBob SquarePants battle for bikini bottoms. <laughs> oh, dear God. <laughs> Sounds so amazing. So. I've literally had that game since I was a kid because we had it on our, our, on our PS2. And, PS2. Is uh, that old? Oh, I thought it yeah, was newer. It's, well, they keep remaking it because oh, then, okay. then we got it for like the PS3 and the Xbox and stuff. But uh, right. I, I, I've been, I'm a seasoned uh, SpongeBob uh, battle for bikini bottom <laughs> player. I've uh, I've beat the game several times, so I I would recommend it. You know, yeah, well, it Anyways. looks like they came out with a new one in 2020 April. So make sure you get the I latest version. That one, but the like really old one, where on the cover it's SpongeBob wearing like the camo army hat. Okay, that is uh, I think that's the best version of the game. Um, I could lend you my PS2, and you can mm. you can play it. Well, that's uh, maybe we have a deal. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what I get out of it, but sure. You can. So, are we gonna are we gonna name this diving app you're talking about, or is it just gonna remain? Oh, on- oh uh, it's the links in the the link is in the show notes. I should say that uh, the okay. game the game itself is called uh, it's called Virtual Divers International, isn't it? I also looked at it because I I saw the ad for it and I was like, oh man, this is like super cool. It's called Virtual Virtual Divers International. Um, like I said, I'll put a link to the the uh, article in the show notes so you can check it out on your app store of choice. It's got some positive reviews, um, and uh, but the I don't know. It looks if you've got an extra like fifty a, bucks laying around. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I would. But um, I, I see some. I see some people in good trim. Uh, hovering yeah. on a line in the, uh, in the game screenshots. So that's promising. I mean, they're doing some skills challenges to maintain neutral buoyancy. <laughs> oh no, they're doing they're doing mass clearing skills hovering. Wow! One meter I think off it the is bottom. worth fifty bucks. Maybe I'll okay. get it. Yeah. So check it out. Be in contact. Let us know. Um, I would wait uh, for for Nick or Amit to tell us their gaming t- top tips, but. Uh, You'd be waiting a long time on me. Uh, yeah, I believe <laughs> me and gaming, ew, we don't have a great history together. <laughs> no, not that I can say anything bad about gaming. I, I understand from such amazing books as Rise of Superman that gaming is so addictive to people because it puts them in a state of flow. And that's one of the real, well, real reasons that uh, mm. so many people love the access to gaming and all the rest of that. I just find for myself, I'd rather, you know, dive in and do it for real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, that's kind of uh, what I was going to say. I find the the concept uh, reaching out to people virtually interesting because it it's an easy way to reach a broad audience digitally and through technology. Um, I don't know if you know that would ever equate um, to, to diving for the very first time. Um, I mean, the answer to that is no, right? I mean, I think we can all share that as as divers, and then every single guest that we've had on this show would probably echo that. Um, Fifty bucks, maybe a little bit steep for an intro game. Um, again, I don't know much about you know what gaming prices go for, um, but if Avatar came out with a game, I might go for that. Yeah, let's see. Yeah. Food for thought. Yeah, that's definitely good uh, food for thought. And uh, you know what else is good food for thought is Nick's book recommendation. It's literally food for thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so today <laughs> today I just kind of want to talk a little bit about uh, a book that I picked up at the dive shop the other day. Um, it's a book by Dr. Chris Harvey-Clark, who's uh, local to 
Dalhousie University in Halifax, and he came out with a book called Maritime Marine Life, um, A Field Guide to Fishes, Invertebrates, and Plants of the Northwest Atlantic. I think it's a neat little, um, it's a little bit bigger than a pocketbook, but it's certainly um, very thin, very small, lots of great photos, really short descriptions. Um, It's very sort of accessible, neatly laid out. Um, The photos are really great. And I noticed there's some photos from uh, other divers, local tests like Lloyd Bond in here and stuff like that, which is awesome. What I really like, it covers a lot of things that obviously you'll see around here, um, but some things that you might not see regularly. So it might be able to, it might be something you can sort of, you know, if you're somebody that's keen on, on marine life and sort of more naturalist things, you can kind of put things on on a bucket list to tick off to see on your dives. Um, we often get local divers on on local social media posting, um, you know, hey, what's this, right? And then there's a bunch of people chiming in, and a lot of the more experienced divers will so say, hey, this is that, and other people go like, I don't know what this is. Um, so I think it's a, a great resource for for the area. Um, and it's it's what I really like about it is the price. I think it comes in at like 20, 23 bucks Canadian. Um, so for, for a piece of work that's really well put together, really accessible, um, easy to understand language, um, I think it's like a great resource for local divers and I would encourage people to pick it up. I know there's another, um, there's another book, another series of guidebooks, I think by Martinez is the last name. Just um, don't remember like the actual name of the title, but is, there's another there's another set of ID books that are a little bit older for sort of the Northwest Atlantic. Um, and I've actually found those really hard to get my hands on in, in recent years. So it's nice that there's something kind of up to date, fresh, and um, yeah, it's local, but Northwest Atlantic. If you're wondering what things are on the water, pick up a copy of the book. I believe there are copies at Torpedo Race. Is that right, April? There is. I can't believe how many of them we have sold. So I need to actually give uh, Dr. Chris Harvey Clark a call next week to uh, <laughs> replenish our stock. Yeah, because I think right now we've got about hmm, maybe six of them left. So definitely need to order up some more. Torpedo race ships worldwide. So uh, call up April or shoot her an email and she'll send you one out. Does anybody else had here any of you had a chance to see it or pick up a copy? I have it on my coffee table and it's actually like a really great book to just have and like flip through like while you're having coffee. Um because it's like or even like after a dive or something like come home and it's like oh I saw that. Oh, I saw that. Like I don't know it's it's cool and then I'm also like going through it and um, me and my boyfriend were like looking at a species and then we we're also like Googling it to like learn even more about it. So I don't know. I've I've been enjoying it. And it's the first book I've really seen with like fish ID for Nova Scotia. So I'm also kind of enjoying that mm. aspect of it as well. It sounds like Chris should do QR codes to a website for more info next time. <laughs> if you're Googling. That would be so cool. Actually, that would be yeah. that is a you need to call him, Nick. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm claiming royalties right now. Anyway. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I would. Yeah. What, what about awesome. uh, Amit and Justin? Have you have you had a chance to see or pick up the book? I have seen the book in the shop uh, in my last few passes through the store, and uh, I keep meaning to pick one up. Uh, I'm definitely going to. It's on my it's on my list of things to I pick up. I mean, it's, it's recommended by Diving the Podcast. Along with my fish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what else do you need? I mean, so... <laughs> 
Yeah, as far as I go, I have the original book, uh, the, the first publication of that one. So this is a follow-up. I have not been to the dive shop very often, uh, I think, in the last little bit. Uh, so I've not seen it, I think, since it's popped Does, in, does but, he have another uh, one out, Amit? This is like the second edition. This, yeah. Because there's okay. a first edition to that book. Mm-hmm. Which they did is, one uh, like 20 years ago or something. Yeah. So mm-hmm. this is 10. 20 years yeah. of improvement. No. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it's it's definitely on my list of uh, of books to grab, and so I'll probably grab one on my next trip in. Mm-hmm. Nice. Sounds a lot like a promotion there. Like, are we promoting this book now? Is that what's going on? Yeah, whatever. Sure, we are. Okay. You know how it, when you go to like chapters, they have those little like stickers on the front, like Heather's pick or like whatever. Oh yeah, we um, could put it. Yeah, we, we, could we get should a put stickers pick. on the ones at the shop saying. Dive in the podcast pick or well, we dive in the podcast them. approved. And- that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Chris is going to be like, ah, book, is that what you're saying? I don't yeah. think that's going to fly. Our autographs <laughs> in Chris's book. Mm, good idea. <laughs> I can see it now. <laughs> like, yeah. And you clearly and- work in marketing, don't you? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Talk to our lawyer. <laughs> um, that's great. Hey, you can, sell a, you can sell a book with anyone's signature <laughs> in it. All right. Everybody, that does it for this week's episode. I want to thank Francesca for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. As I've said before, it was a lot of fun and uh, was a, was a great interview. Learned a lot, and it was uh, yeah. Well, I can't wait to listen to that one again as I go through it for the edit. I also want to thank Nick. It's an absolute pleasure as always. Uh, it's always great to catch up uh, with with people that I've met, uh, you know, through my diving journey that I haven't had seen for a while because of COVID. And, uh, you know, always nice to hear a different perspective. Uh, you know, her work on marine sanctuaries is definitely something we don't hear very often in, you know, Northern California. I think maybe not a place we went to yet. So um, excited about that. And I also want to thank April for, um, yeah, pulling the weight on the questions tonight. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Nick. Happy, happy to, uh, to do that. Thanks for editing and revising and rearranging as <laughs> <That's> required. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it was a great episode and uh, it was a lot of fun. And thank you, uh, Justin, for uh, putting a little spotlight on SpongeBob this episode. I love and appreciate that. Uh, And I guess all the work you do as well. Well, well, thank you, April. You're welcome. Anytime. Well, most of the time. And and admit, thank you. There's a there's a lot of love going around right now, so I, just, uh-huh. you know, it's great. I'm happy to be here, and um, I just show up and talk to people, man. That's it's, what you do. It's just the thing I do. It's what <laughs> I do. What you do. <laughs> Don't cry now. Don't cry now, now he's crying. <laughs> now he's tearing up. It's too much love. It's tears of joy. Tears of joy. <laughs> Don't forget, you can support our podcast at patreon.com slash diveinpod and get some fun rewards for doing so. You can also visit our website, diveinpod.com, for all the links you need, episodes, merch, and so much more. You can follow me at idiveok. I'm at April Weikert. You can find me at nicholaswinkler.com. This episode of Dive in the Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Torpedo Race Scuba. Thank you for listening to Dive in the Podcast.